This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, my name is Mark Dorley. I'm the director of the ethics program, and it's uh, my pleasure to uh, moderate this session, uh, which I don't think will be <coughs> like really heavy lifting, uh, given our, um, our, our custom of uh, engaging uh, people that coming here either from among our own faculty or visitors to engaging their work. So I'm sure we're going to have a very lively discussion for the next two hours. But we do, I'm going to introduce Professor Fuller in a second here, but we do have three, three um, people that have come in with prepared remarks. And so we're going to, the process is going to be, I'm going to ask each of them to offer those remarks and then Professor Fuller will respond to them. Um, in, you know, instead of hearing all three at once, we'll, we'll let uh, him respond to each of them in turn. And then when that's done, it's going to be open floor. So I, I'm sure that, um, that the conversation is going to spark your interest. Um, so I think Steve, Stephen has to teach. So you're going to go first, all right? And then Mark, and then Gail. Okay. So, um, so Professor Fuller gave a great talk last night. Uh, it was about... 80 to 100 people there, it was great. And uh, we could have went on and on with questions. The students were, were, um, were ready to take him on. Um, even a faculty member asked a question. But, um, <laughs> and then we had a very lively conversation at dinner last night. So Professor Steve Fuller is the Auguste Comte Chair in Social uh, Epistemology at the University of Warwick in England. And um, you know, as it, you've got, a, I hope you got a chance to look at some of the materials that Gero sent out um, ahead of this. Um, he has taken on this rather uh, ambitious project to imagine a humanity 2.0, given um, the capacities of science uh, that we've reached at this point in in, um, in uh, human history. So, um, I am confident that um, he's going to enjoy hearing what we have to say. And uh, must he asked me to note to the camera that uh, he has no idea what's going to be said. So this is gonna, this is a completely extemporaneous um, uh, experience, which is uh, often some, which are often sometimes the best experiences in, in academia. So uh, without further ado, um, I'm going to ask uh, Stephen to share some thoughts with us. All right. So uh, my name is Stephen Napier. For those who hadn't met me yet, um, I'm in the philosophy department. Uh, I would like to thank the ethics program, uh, philosophy department, and uh, Center for Liberal Education for sponsoring this. I think it's great that uh, Steve Fuller is here and uh, uh, learned. I, I wasn't there last night, but I'm sure everyone learned a lot from you. Um, I couldn't make it there last night. Um, so I just want to uh, point out uh, one of my areas is bioethics, and I have a particular interest within bio bioethics on uh, human enhancement technologies. And um, I also have one hand in on positive psychology, Martin Seligman, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Mihile uh, oh, okay. Mihai. And so uh, I'm trying to understand, and I don't have an opinion on whether uh, cognitive enhancements are permissible or impermissible, but it seems like there are certain values that the positive psychologists are adverting to that seem to be in tension with some cognitive enhancements, in particular this uh, value of flow. So Csikszentmihalyi has this notion of uh, flow experiences. Flow experiences are those in which uh, a person's attention is completely immersed in activity, 
the activity is challenging and challenging to the extent that it's pushing the upper limit of that person's skill set. Okay? And so this flow experience um, uh, includes a, a complete engagement in a very challenging task that exercises the upper limit of one's skill set. Um, and flow, people who experience flow report greater uh, satisfaction. Uh, and uh, Martin Seligman makes a distinction between pleasure and gratification. He thinks that we need more gratification. We need more exercise of our skills. Uh, and he gives the example of a rock climber hanging 100 feet over a precipice is having a better time than a Monday night football fan watching football. Okay. So that's kind of the idea, right? There's an exercise of one's skill set that's challenging. Um, so what does this have to do with uh, human enhancement? Well, it seems that some human enhancements uh, and proponents of human enhancement might be, and again, I don't think this is permissible or impermissible, but there might be a value here that's being overlooked, the value of engagement in one's skills, right? Exercising one's skills. You can enhance one's core cognitive capacities, as Nick Bostrom defines it, but that may or may not lead to uh, exercise of one's skill set. It may or may not lead to a flow experience in the notion uh, understood as uh, Csikszentmihalyi. And so uh, I guess my only point is, is that uh, human enhancements uh, might not be an enhancement, okay? You would still need to engage in challenging tasks, exercising one's skills, and uh, that seems to be what is uh, truly fulfilling and gratifying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so okay, well, thank you very much. Um, I actually happen to be someone who uh, takes seriously the positive psychology movement. Let me be on the record on that, and I'll say something about that in a moment. Um, I think there are a lot of things that travel under the, the rubric of enhancement within the transhumanist movement. And one of the things that I've distanced myself from is the idea of moral enhancement. Okay, because moral enhancement, in a sense, gets at the kind of thing you're worried about, uh, which is the idea that you can uh, somehow take a drug or a pill or maybe be genetically modified in some kind of way um, and end up becoming a better person. Okay, so you don't have to engage in the struggle. Um, and I'm very much against that. I'm against that for a couple of reasons. Not only because of the reasons that you're alluding to, uh, but also because from an empirical standpoint, there's no reason to think this would work. The kinds of things that are being promote, proposed as moral enhancements in terms of, you know, varying the, the, chemical, the chemicals in your neurotransmitters and things like this, uh, they may produce a certain kind of effect that makes you more friendly or more open or more altruistic in some kind of broad, general kind of way, but may also have other kinds of side effects that we don't know about yet. So to call these things moral enhancements when we're, all we're talking about is chemical manipulation is a bit of a misnomer and, and in a way blinding us to what the unintended consequences are. So let me just be clear about this point. Namely, I have nothing against making these kinds of interventions as long as one doesn't overstate what the consequences are likely to be. So in other words, if we think that perhaps giving people certain kinds of chemical treatments might make them somewhat better, 
let's do it, but, but with open eyes in the sense that there may be all kinds of other consequences that come along the line. So there's no one-shot solution, as it were, to our moral failure. But let me get to the point that I think is more directly relevant to positive psychology. Um, there's a lot of aspects to positive psychology. I don't know how generally known it is among you people. I mean, uh, to me, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm interested in the fact that you're interested in it. Um, and I've always been interested in it and, and uh, largely coming through uh, thinking seriously about Abraham Maslow and self-actualization theory and then moving from there into Seligman and the more recent positive psychology. But I think the key, uh, one thing that positive psychologists have focused on that I think is very crucial to what you're talking about is the issue of self-handicapping. I don't know if you've run across this idea. Self-handicapping. This is the idea that in a sense, uh, you engage in some very risky kind of activity, but in the mindset, but, but in a sense you're overreaching, but with the mindset that you might well fail, but nevertheless you already kind of know that. Okay? So in other words, what you're, what you're trying to do is, uh, you're trying to, you, 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 you know, instead of just solving a problem that people think is within your means, you try to solve something that's a bit beyond it knowing that you may well fail, but in that respect, you give, you're given credit for having tried to achieve so much, even if you haven't succeeded, right? So, so uh, this is called self-handicapping, uh, and it's also part of positive psychology. And I think this is the spirit in which we should be entering into the enhancement business, actually, that in a sense, uh, you know, we may be trying, you know, rather than just trying to solve a kind of very restricted sort of medical problem, we're actually trying to achieve something more and we know we might well fail, but the fact that we're trying to achieve more ends up giving us some kind of credit as long as we're able to learn from the failure that results. And this is self-handicapping, okay? It's a term that's used um, and, and, in, in, uh, and this was originally seen, I didn't realize we were getting into this, to be perfectly honest, uh, but it's something I've been thinking about very much lately because there is a question with regard to the whole enhancement stuff in transhumanism about what should your, be your mindset as you enter into this personally. How should you be thinking about this? And I think self-handicapping provides a kind of avenue into this where in a sense you already anticipate failure but you've received some kind of gratification in terms of having trying to, you know, the fact that you're trying to achieve this kind of larger goal. Um, I'm going to interject here to thank Stephen for uh, doing the heavy lifting for me. I forgot, I forgot to, to, first of all, introduce him and the other speakers and also tell you who sponsored this. So thank you for doing that. Sure. But, so, but you, you've now modeled what I'm going to ask the other two speakers to do, is to introduce yourselves. So go ahead, Mark. All right, thanks. Uh, I'm Mark Schiffman in the Humanities Department here at Villanova um, with all kinds of interests, including the history of science um, and hermeneutics. Uh, and, um, and I'm grateful particularly uh, to Georg for the invitation for everyone to uh, put this together and, and to Steve for being here. Um, and I want to uh, emphasize at the outset that, um, that uh, there's a lot that I respect about um, Steve Fuller's intellectual engagements. Um, <clears throat> particularly, you know, it's nice to see someone actually 
making the case that intelligent design is at least intellectually serious, mm -hmm. even if it's maybe not satisfying it ultimately, um, which you know I, I think is right. <coughs> um, but my my sense of my task here today is to be a critic, and so I'm going to be a critic. Um, and what uh, <coughs> in a sense the main thing I'm going to take issue with is uh, Steve's arithmetic. Um, because uh, what he calls humanity 2.0, I would call humanity 4.5. <laughs> okay. And, and I think that I think that's important for getting the, the story straight because uh, I'm I'm sort of addressing um, some Steve's claims on the on the sort of large narrative level, um, and um, and particularly the uh, the theme that he as I understand, emphasized yesterday, I also couldn't make it, I'm sorry to say. Um, but the, uh, the argument that the aspirations that he's, um, that he's articulating for science is a sort of continuation of uh, Christian history. Um, so I'm gonna very briefly sketch out a, a, more, uh, a more articulated narrative, very briefly. Um, and um, just so Georg doesn't get to uh, worked up about what I'm going to do here, I'm going to emphasize that uh, I'm going to present this as a history of subjectivity, uh, but that's purely for heuristic convenience. Um, <clears throat> what I'm really trying to do is sketch out a, a sort of hermeneutics of human horizons, um, and uh, so I'm so I'm going to try to distinguish the distinct iterations of humanity <coughs> by thinking of a human being as a subject and asking subject of what exactly. So humanity 1.0, uh, in my scheme, is the kind of pre-philosophic pagan, um, take your pick, Greeks, Babylonians. Um, and in this regard, they're pretty much the same. Uh, that is the Chinese too. Chinese too, right? Okay. Uh, maybe that I would have to no, no. look into that a bit more to be clear on this point. Um, but the uh, but in this view, the human being is the subject of powers. Uh, and is subjected to powers in a world of powers. <clears throat> the human being uh, emerges from this chaos of conflicting powers, becoming a distinct concentration of agency, uh, a concentration that's able to channel and enlist powers to placate powers when necessary, uh, and then eventually dissolving back into the all. And it's an interesting development, of course, happens in Greece uh, with the sophists claiming to know and teach how to make reason an instrument of the concentration and command of power. Uh, and this project, this claim, um, seems to have sparked the response of what I will call humanity 2.0, which is to say um, pagan, particularly Socratic philosophy. Uh, the ancient philosophers in the Platonic Aristotelian tradition contended that the human being, in my sort of phrasing of it, is better understood as the subject of wonder. <clears throat> but the subject of wonder isn't necessarily an ecstatic subject, never contained within oneself, but always also centered outside oneself. The human is preeminently an erotic being always drawn outside oneself into the world and always penetrated and called forth by the intimate effects of beauty and truth. Uh, and most fundamentally for this human horizon <coughs> uh, of goodness, 
the recognition of goodness as a principle of being, uh, what later scholastics call the convertibility of being and goodness, or in the Platonic tradition, the good beyond being. Um, <clears throat> this is what, this is the horizon that opens in this iteration. Um, now, I, I can't, I don't have time to go into Stoics and Epicureans, but if I can use a little heterodox arithmetic, I'll call them humanity 2.5 because of their backsliding from the horizon of the good and from the ecstatic subjectivity of the tradition. Why don't I say 1.5? Uh, because, because it's backing away. It's a defection. Um, for the Christian, in humanity 3.0, and, and essentially everything that I'm saying about Christianity, which is central in Steve's narrative, is true in analogous ways of, of the Jewish tradition that gives it birth. But again, to that's refinements and complications. Uh, but this human being is best understood as the subject of prayer. And this too, in the Christian understanding, is an ecstatic manner of being, as summed up in Augustine's marvelous Christian re-articulation of Platonic eras, our heart is restless until it rests in thee. And as this formulation indicates, the center in which we are re-centered outside ourselves is the creator, whom we address as a person. And in fact, it's this Christian ecstasis that brings with it the discovery of personhood, which begins to be an ontological category as applied to God. And only thereafter is the human being in the image of God also considered a person ontologically. And there are many dimensions of that, um, that, that develop over the course of this tradition, um, conscience and natural law and those sorts of things, for example. Um, the ground of this human personhood is the possibility of communion in personhood with the creator, which is enacted most um, primarily through prayer. The personhood of the creator, to put it briefly, consists in uh, his radically free relationship to the <coughs> world and all noble order, the radical freedom of agape, which is the love that gives being. And because the world is given the gift of being by agape, it's fundamentally good, as God saw when he created it each day. <coughs> God as the creator is other than the world and not a part of it, but also eminently present to it entirely, both transcendent and eminent. And in the communion of personhood, the Christian transcends the world without ceasing to be part of it, part of the creation, the order of creation. <clears throat> so humanity 3.5, uh, my, my own particular location in this narrative, uh, I think opens the, the maximal horizon of human possibility. <clears throat> Uh, this is the horizon in which the human being explores the ways in which the biblical Christian ecstasis of communion of personhood and the Platonic Aristotelian philosophical ecstasis in the good amplify and specify one another. Uh, and this is something that, um, that Pope Benedict, for example, has tried to, to re-articulate in our time. <clears throat> now to the modern subject who inaugurates my Humanity 4.0 the one who tries to maintain the status of personhood, transcending the world, without relying upon ecstatic communion with the person of God to ground and sustain that transcendence. 
since this transcendence no longer resides ecstatically in the creator of the world, it has to be attained by negation of the world. So what we call the subjective turn proper is a kind of refusal of ecstatic existence in that sense. Uh, initially, right? A kind of stepping back and alienation from the world and then mm -hmm. the reappropriation of it from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this makes the modern subject the subject of projects. And that's why modernity has a Gnostic character. Because this world is not an inherently good creation. And there's another world that provides the alternative to it. In the modern version, the world to be made by us in the future. Mm -hmm. So this alienated, negative, transformative stance toward the world actively rejects, in its, in its active enactment of itself, right? Rejects the convertibility of being goodness. And the hermeneutical horizon of modernity can, I think, be strictly defined as the horizon within which the goodness of being is no longer intelligible. And this is the horizon within which I see Steve's intellectual history working and being confined within. Um, I, you know, following the lead of Milbank and Friends, um, uh, Steve rightly, uh, <laughs> you're, you're the one following, right? I mean, I think you rightly kind of yeah. on SCOTUS, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. And yeah, 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 yeah. As a founding thesis that shapes this horizon. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not convinced that you fully articulate or do adequate justice to the, um, and the analogy of being uh, that precedes that and that is somehow supposed to supersede. Um, and I think that's, I think that kind of lacuna, or partial lacuna, is, um, is part of the kind of scandal of modern thought, um, which is to say that the, that the arguments for the refusal to recognize goodness as a metaphysical principle of being are not very compelling uh, if you actually engage their alternatives. Um, but the problem is that except being within that horizon, it's impossible to engage those alternatives because they just don't make sense. Um, <clears throat> so there's a de facto cultural hegemony of this kind of nominalist discourse, um, but not a de jure uh, victory, I would say. <clears throat> um, so we have the radical constructivism of modern epistemology that issues from this, <clears throat> which is the stance of the subject over against the world as the one whose mind has to construct the conceptual system for ordering phenomena, Heidegger describes as in framing. Um, and this remains only really implicit in nominalism, because nominalism still is a theology of creation. Mm -hmm. That is, it has yes. a confidence in the order of creation as ordered by God's power. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, with Descartes, in his evil genius or omnipotent deceiver, we have a dramatization of the problem in a way that nominalism itself can't dramatize it, um, which awakens Western humanity to the Promethean dimensions of the rejection of the goodness of being. And modern science is the distinctive collective project of modernity to reappropriate the world from the standpoint of the human capacity to be the subject of projects. And so what Steve is calling humanity 2.0, and I call humanity 4.5, sorry, uh, comes about when this reappropriation of the world is turned back upon our own bodies <coughs> in such a way that they come to be treated as indifferent, modifiable technological instruments of our arbitrary wills. And thus the neo-Gnosticism of modernity becomes really thoroughly Gnostic. Um, so I have three talking points based on this. 
I hope you publish this. This is very good, yeah. actually. It is very good. <laughs> it's a work in progress. <laughs> um, so, um, what I call Humanity 4.0 has tried to appropriate Christian language and categories for its Promethean agenda ever since Bacon appropriated the word charity for, for techno-mastery and its benefits. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, some sort of reading what I see going on around me, the more aggressive manifestations of Humanity 4.5 are making the sleight of hand of that move clearer than it has been in the past, uh, which I think has some interesting sociological consequences, at least in the US, um, in accelerating a kind of cultural movement to recover Humanity 3.5 classical humanist. Um, and we see this in you know, the sort of American style and this talent for voluntary associations in the, uh, I think, accelerating growth of these classical academies, classical curriculum homeschooling movements, uh, which are really you know, growing quickly. So on the one hand, I think Steve is making exactly the argument, the kind of argument that he needs to make about like that to, to sort of convince people that this is continuous Christian aspirations, but I don't think it's convincing. Um, I think it, it requires a kind of hermeneutical obfuscation that, um, that fails to actually meet the, the objections. Um, I'm just gonna briefly summarize my other talking points because I know going on. But um, the, uh, the second really is about the, um, the more institutional sustainability of the kind of ambitious, research agenda um, that, that Steve is proposing or encouraging. Um, and I'm just, you know, I just wonder whether uh, we're here at the, uh, at the sort of dissolution of the, um, the sort of bourgeois capitalist empire um, and are sort of desperately clinging to escape fantasies. Um, and this, whether this is one of them. Um, and uh, I could go on about that, but I won't. Uh, the third, uh, the related point is, I kind of have the impression that transhumanists make the typical libertarian mistake of taking themselves, the high-spirited few who are really enamored of this kind of ascetic self-overcoming, uh, to serve as the model and standard for most everyone else who live, in a platonic term, more according to their appetites. Mm. Who love security, uh, my friend Peter Lawler describes them as securitarians. Mm. Um, mm. Right? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> whose, whose escape fantasy is not uploading their mind into silicon bodies, but rather sitting poolside on gigantic cruise ships. Right. Um, <sighs> And, I, and, and part of, I think, the, if there's an oversight there, uh, I think part of what's involved in that oversight, too, is when I mean, you talk about moral entrepreneurship and, um, and how, in some ways, this you know, will make uh, social life unattractive to us uh, according to our standards. Uh, and I think part of what will be unattractive about that, uh, <coughs> that kind of works against your sort of you know socialist benefit sharing scheme um, is that I don't think it will be at all egalitarian minded. Uh, that is, if you are <coughs> um, 
uh, I think to put it another way, right, the, this, the, the sort of myth, mythological picture of this figure of humanity marching progressively through history and the continual self-transcendence kind of masks the fact that if knowing is about power, it's not going to be everyone's power. Mm-hmm. It's not, there's not going to be humanity who's the subject of that power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, my suspicion is that in this new order of things that you're envisioning, which may very well come about in some sense, um, human beings typically, or at least the ones running the show, won't care about equality. Why should they? Um, because we'll finally have shed the antiquated humanity 3.0 notion of the transcendent dignity of personhood. <laughs> well, first, let me let me thank you. This is brilliant. Okay, as a critique, and and uh, mm-hmm. and and so you publish this somewhere. <laughs> I'm working on it. Okay, no, 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 because it's it's very good. It brings up all all the right questions, and it's just so much to uh, <laughs> respond to here. Um, first of all, uh, you know, for purposes of the camera and so forth. He does get the drift. <laughs> um, and yesterday at the talk, in, in a way, what I was focusing on mostly was on the third point that you were raising uh, about the, 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 the sort of the libertarian sort of impetus in transhumanism. And um, here I would say, uh, and, I'm a, and as you pointed out toward the end of your remarks, I'm, I'm actually trying to give a kind of socialist spin on this. Um, but I do think there is an issue here about what egalitarianism will mean in the future. Because let's, let's, let's put it that way. Um, because uh, within the history of socialism and, and, and let's say liberal politics more generally, there's always been a kind of uh, a tension between when we talk about egalitarianism, whether we mean equality of opportunity or equality of outcome, okay? And generally, liberals versus socialists fall on opposite sides of that divide, with the liberals going for the equality of opportunity and the (coughs) socialists going for the equality of outcome. Um, And uh, I think what transhumanism, in the way at least that I'm advancing it, is actually moving away from the equality of outcome but for the equality of opportunity. We still keep the equality of opportunity. And this is why, um, especially in the way in which I've developed this, this idea of humanity 2.0 uh, in, uh, in the subsequent works, and, and in particular in the last one, the pro-actionary imperative, um, I've, uh, I've, I've really focused a lot on how can you organize a society around the, the, the prospect that there'll be a lot of risk taking, which even though individuals bear it in the initial point, nevertheless is somehow socially securitized, right? So in other words, it is to everyone's benefit that certain people take risks and that the people who take the risks aren't just simply by themselves going to be advantaged or disadvantaged, but it's a sort of societal project as it were. Okay? And so those people who don't want to take the risks to engage in the more adventurous forms of therapy and whatever that, that transhumanists are proposing, those, those people who don't want to engage in that nevertheless are subsidizing those who do. And so you get some kind of collective ownership of the entire project. Uh, this is kind of what I'm imagining here. 
But, but the kind of egalitarianism that's involved in that kind of conception is, is a kind of equality of opportunity kind of thing, namely where people will take advantage of certain kinds of situations um, and may end up differently in terms of what happens to them, but nevertheless there's a kind of collective ownership. So you're not looking for an outcome where everyone turns out to be equal in some kind of sense of everybody having the same abilities and stuff like that but there's a collective ownership of the differences that end up existing. Okay, and I think that's the key point here. Um, so it's a kind of socialized liberal society. Okay, it's, it's not socialism in the classic sense, but it's a socialized liberal society. And I think that's what transhumanism ought to be working, for, uh, working toward. And I realize that the challenges that are faced by this uh, is that the possibilities for different outcomes become much wider under transhumanism because people are going to be experimenting, if we allow them to, to do all kinds of crazy things with their bodies and uploading their consciousness and all kinds of stuff uh, where the outcomes are, are far from known. And in fact, part of what this adventure is about is about discovering the outcomes. So in a sense, you know, the errors, the failures, all the rest of it are part of the mix as well. And they're not just things at least in my understanding, to be sort of eugenically negated. Okay, and this is where transhumanism differs from the class, you know, from a certain kind of view of eugenics from the 20th century, where the idea was, you know, if you understand how the genes work, you can get rid of all the undesirable people and just promote the ones that are worth. But genetics doesn't work that way. Okay, and so we have to get rid of the idea that there's some fear of master race or anything. The main problem is going to be our ability to have a society that tolerates the kinds of differences that we're going to end up generating through these kinds of interventions, okay? Many of which will be uh, products of what will be regarded as failure. Um, one of the things I said at dinner yesterday, which is relevant to this point, is that there's a, a report that was put out uh, by the Brookings Institution at the end of last year uh, called Our Cyborg Future. And what this report was about uh, was about the increasing visibility of people who we would normally consider disabled, but who nevertheless are being enhanced prosthetically and through all kinds of means. And, and largely, these people are able to do that precisely because they're disabled. So in other words, if an able-bodied person wanted to undergo the kinds of radical kinds of treatments and so forth, they wouldn't be allowed to. But if you're disabled, you know, the prospects are opened up for you in this sense, right? Stephen Hawking, right, is a poster boy for this kind of thing, right? And before he uh, killed his girlfriend, Oscar Pistorius was also such a person, okay? Um, and, and, what, and what the Brookings Institution is pointing to here is the fact that as more and more of these people become, come on stream and actually are able to succeed in social, socially recognized terms, uh, they become role models in effect, and what you do get is an interest on the part of normal-bodied people wanting to become like them, being willing to, you know, change their limbs, change, you know, have things implanted in them, even if they don't need to, from a strictly, you know, traditional, classical medical standpoint. In other words, people find these kinds of lives quite desirable and are, are willing to kind of, as it were, make the change, make the shift. And, and this is going to put a lot of pressure on uh, you know, institutional review boards and other kinds of you know, entities that are concerned with the, 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 the ethical restrictions on, on biomedical research. 
And, and so we have to be able to cope with that, that there's a sense in which there's a shift that is taking place among the normal body people. So in other words, this is not just, um, you know, because I do think that to a certain extent it is true that the, it is a kind of a, a kind of Gnostic vision of a certain kind of elite group of people and blah, blah, blah. And, and they may come from different kind of areas. So you have some very rich people and then you have some sort of crazy philosophical people like me and we don't necessarily have exactly the same background but we nevertheless are converging in the same direction. But it's not just that, right? It's actually the consequences of seeing these people who are able to be enhanced by virtue of having started with disabilities that actually provide then a kind of new role model for what it means to be a human being, okay? And so I'll give you an example. Last year when I was, uh, I was part of a cyber salon in London, there's a part of London called Shoreditch in the east part of London, which is full of all funky designer type people, etc., etc. And then here was, a, here was a little cyber salon where half the people in the panel, there were six people, half of them were cyborgs in the strict sense of having very significant prosthetic enhancements done to them, and the rest of us were kind of humanity 1.0 homo sapiens types, okay? And we were there, and we were all together in the panel, and the thing that was very striking from the standpoint of the audience uh, was that there were people in the audience saying, how can I get this? Right? How can I become this? You know, another people willing, you know, uh, you know, if to find out how they can become this other kind of being, because they thought even though this person who has this prosthetic enhancement started off, you know, you know, basically, you know, remedying a problem with their biological limb, nevertheless, given the additional things they get by virtue of having the enhancement, think this would be a better thing to have just normally. Okay. Uh, and so the Brookings Institution, in putting out this report, is saying, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to deal with this kind of subtle shift in the norm that comes about by seeing enhanced disabled people? Okay? Um, uh, uh, the day after tomorrow, I'm going to be doing a, an interview for a, a program that's being done in the, by the Discovery Channel. And, and what they're talking about is the idea of, you know, human beings in space spending a long time in space, like an interstellar, if you recall the movie, right, recent movie, right? And one of the points that I plan to make there uh, is that, in fact, the, the sort of Stephen Hawking type people, the cyborgs of the world, as it were, uh, actually might be better, you know, might be really well suited for that because a lot of the problems that we traditionally associate with the problems of existing in space for a long time have to do with our being in humanity 1.0 way. And so if you think of somehow cosmic exploration and being able to move around in space as somehow some kind of uh, extension of what it means to be a human being, then radical transformation of the human body may be on the cards, okay? Uh, and in a sense, we already kind of know what that is. Now, I think what, what this does raise, and, and, and this is, a, you know, the point about personhood is very well taken because what does personhood mean here? Because I do actually think personhood is the crucial issue. I was saying this at dinner last night, that actually personhood was the metaphysical point where you want to kind of engage with this issue. Because within the history of philosophy, um, the idea of what it is to be a person is a very fluid notion, okay? And it's primarily, in a, you know, and if you look at John Locke, I think it's very clear, but I think primarily a legal notion. Right? It's a legal notion. Uh, it's a forensic notion. 
It's a way of finding a locus for attributing responsibility for action. That is really what it's about. That's what personhood is really about. And you can define this in terms of an individual, you know, animal-based organism, or you can define it in terms of a corporation, which is one of the things that we talked about yesterday too, corporate persons. And in fact, the, cor the idea of the corporation, person as a corporation, right, goes back to the late Middle Ages, okay? Um, and, and so personhood is the key issue here uh, in terms of where we want to take this idea and the, and the extent to which person is associated with humanity. Now when we talk about um, rights, because rights in, in the legal context is usually the, the, case, the case in which we talk about humans as having personhood, we have a very kind of complex, robust notion of rights and again for those of you who are concerned about the legal side of this, which I think is very important given the range of things that we're now thinking about in terms of rights. The person to look at is uh, Wesley Hofeld, okay, H-O-H-F-E-L-D, um, from uh, the early 20th century, Yale constitutional lawyer, who is the, uh, who is basically seen, if you read somebody like Hart, H-L-A Hart, for those of you in the philosophy of law, when he cites where he's getting his ideas about rights from, it's from him. Um, and Wesley Hofeld actually has a very kind of, very sophisticated notion of different, you might say, levels or degrees of personhood that require rights. And you start at the basic level, kind of like the right to self-protection. And that's a certain kind of personhood whose integrity needs to be maintained. And animal rights people are very well aware of that. But when you move beyond the animal level, we're now talking about autonomy as being essential to what a person is. And autonomy has to do with self-expression and the capacity to act in the world and be held responsible for one's actions in the world. And that is typically what the human rights, right? That conception of personhood has been essential to that. And then the question becomes, what sorts of beings can be entitled to that besides the biological 1.0? Now, we've been spending most of the modern period trying to get most of biological 1.0 into that category of autonomous, right? And it was really only with the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that we actually had an international legal basis for claiming these things. Because prior to that, all concerns about human rights were basically reduced to civil rights. And so it depended upon what your country made of your status. But it's with the human the UN Declaration that we actually then start to get the international issues and, and as a result you can start having countries like the United States claiming China you don't respect human rights. This is a problem. Where would be the legal basis for saying that before 1948? It wouldn't be there. It wouldn't be there. Okay? So the point is that the idea that we have human rights you know, and, that, and that we have legal protections and legal in, enforcement to actually enable all human beings to have this kind of maximum level of personhood that, right, that, that the idea of rights allows, autonomy and self-expression, is relatively recent. But now we have other things knocking on the door. Not only the cyborgs, but the machines, the artificial intelligences, other beings that potentially could exercise intentionality, and you were talking about this last night at the dinner, right? And, and as a result could be claimed to have rights. They may not have sentience in the sense that they cannot feel the world 
experience the world in the way in which human beings can, or perhaps even in the way that any animal can, but nevertheless can have the kind of intentionality and, and, and perhaps therefore the autonomy and will that is actually required by the higher level notions of personhood that human rights is based on. And so you get people nowadays arguing, especially if we imagine that artificial intelligence become more and more sophisticated as time goes on, that those kinds of beings should also be entitled to some kind of human status, at least with regard to the high-level personhood of human rights, autonomy, in a way in which we might not say animals are entitled to, but we might want artificial intelligences to be entitled to that. And you were pointing out to the study by a Harvard psychologist. Danny Wagner? Yes, that's right. Right, where there is this split between people's intuitions with regard to sentience versus intentionality. And I think if we're talking about the issues of personhood uh, and rights and so forth, we're talking about intentionality for the most part. And that when people are arguing for animal rights, and I think Peter, this is why Peter Singer is very squeamish on the word rights for animal rights. Because really what we're talking about there is just animal protection, allowing them in a space where they can live. But it's not rights in the full self-expressive personhood kind of sense that we've have felt have so been, been so valuable for human beings historically. But I think in the case of artificial intelligences and machines, we are actually talking about that. And so the potential for the androids and the machines and so forth, it's actually very expensive. And this is where the idea of what does humanity 2.0 mean, it may incorporate much more than the biological homo sapiens. It may actually move not only into the cyborg realms of the Stephen Hawking's, which I think we pretty easily accept as being human still, even though Stephen Hawking has been enhanced in all kinds of amazing ways that gets him way beyond humanity 1.0. He's still a human being. We may have to even go further and say that the artificial intelligences count as that as well. Okay? Um, but this still leaves, I don't want to go on for too long, but you've raised so many important points here. Um, it does raise, you know, because the point that it seems to me your point, your point, your positive point, is about trying to um, reinstate the concept of goodness as a metaphysical principle above all this. Um, and uh, I don't know how much longer you want me to go on this, but I can, I can say a little bit more about it. Just a little it. bit. Just a little bit. I don't want to, I don't want to, no. okay. Um, is that, because um, this is something I get criticized a lot for, because I think one way to look at what I'm doing, um, especially if you do have the kind of theological chops this guy has, um, is that um, I actually am, uh, I seem to be kind of uh, open-minded in a very uh, kind of alarming way with regard to what's good and what's evil, okay? Uh, because there's a sense in which, in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of the tra trajectory of humanity, right, we're talking about the potential for a very radical transformation taking place as we supposedly get closer to God. So in other words, you know, we're, we're, you know Jesus Christ may have been the Son of God in the 1.0 sense, but what the 2.0 sense may be radically different. Okay, and this does seem to, be, and this may then mean all kinds of radical sorts of changes that call into question what the difference between good and evil is. And this is something, and now something you did not talk about, but but is very much part of my worldview, is the issue of theodicy. Okay, 
uh, I, again, I, you know, I think for this audience, this may not be a foreign concept, um, and this is the idea of God's justice in the world, right? And the extent to which we can think about particular lives as means toward a larger end. So even though these lives end up having a certain amount of suffering and whatever, nevertheless, these are means toward this larger end of ultimate goodness. And where, as it were, the goodness is only realized at the end, but is the, it's very difficult to actually see the exact character of the goodness in the meanwhile. Okay? Um, and I think I get a sense this is kind of what you're, part of what you're concerned about when you want to make good the kind of ultimate metaphysical uh, concept, is that, that part of what I'm saying here is that you can't really tell what's good or bad until you've tried it out and then see what happens in the long term. So there's going to be a lot of room for failure, a lot of room for experimentation, a lot of room for ambiguity with regard to ethical judgments that people make, and that we have to be able to live in a world that allows for that. And that it, you cannot make snapshot instant decisions about what's good and bad about things. Okay? Um, and let me just say, just at the end, before we move on, that historically this is how we have in fact behaved. Right? So at the end of World War II, both with the Nazi Holocaust and with the dropping of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima, we did not end genetics and we did not end nuclear energy. Okay? We could have done that. There were, there, in fact, if you look at the history from that period in the late 40s, early 50s, there were a lot of people mobilizing for that. Okay? But we didn't do that. And that was a very smart and very profound move. And I think that we should basically, um, as it were, prepare ourselves to be in, you know, in store for more of this kind of history in the future, right? Where we learn from the errors, we put in the safeguards, but we do not deny the advancements of science as part of what it is to be a human being as we progress into the future. That the, so, so I actually think that human beings have been behaving properly overall in the long term. But obviously this means making some very tough decisions in the short term. And I think the short term decisions that we made with regard to the future of genetics and the future of nuclear energy at the end of World War II were the right ones. Maybe some of you disagree with that. But that was a decision that did have to be made given the atrocities that were caused in the short term as a result of those activities. And this is all I'm talking about. I'm simply talking about continuing that mentality. Because that, I think, is the right mentality. And I'll stop there. Thanks. Um, but you make sure you get that published. <laughs> Uh, hi everybody, uh, I'm, uh, I'm George, I'm a member of the philosophy department here and uh, I come to this debate from a very different kind of angle. I'm, I'm actually a philosopher of mind and philosopher of cognitive science. Um, and um, so my entry point to this debate um, was um, when I, I uh, last, last, last summer I, I, I read uh, Steve Fuller's book on Humanity 2.0 and um, he makes an interesting uh, remarks about self-transcendence as being kind of the mark of the human. Um, possibly an impulse towards self-deification. And so one of the possible futures that might be projected into the next century is what he calls humanity incorporated, 
um, uh, precedents are the medieval artifice of the universitas. And then he says, it includes all of its pre-modern, modern, and post-modern affiliates, the extended phenotype, the extended or supersized mind, um, systems architecture. These are all ideas where human and non-human elements <coughs> are not only combined, but allowed to co-develop into novel unities. Um, all of these proposals share the idea that humanity's distinctiveness comes from our superior organic capacity to make the environment part of ourselves, as Hobbes had already suggested in the Leviathan, it's an especially materialist take on the Imago Dei doctrine. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. So, and, and here's, and here's one, just one quote from Andy Clark, who sort of developed the idea of the supersized or extended mind, and the image of that we already are natural born cyborgs, once we hit humanity one, though, as it were. Um, that really you have, um, you have, it's not a mind-body, but it's a mind-body scaffolding problem. We create the environments, and thanks to those environments, we are able to squeeze a lot of sort of high-level, distinctively mental cognitive functionality out of our biological brains and bodies, which otherwise we wouldn't be able to do. Um, and of course, you saw this analogy too. And so for instance, in, in, in your second book, you, you have this nice, um, you discuss Donald Norman, um, and you say, where this general trend accorded the world historic significance that it deserves, um, then Ralph Waldo Emerson and McLuhan would be the, the patron saints of our times. And of course, I thought, so if, if my work has some world historical significance, right, then sort of you tend to listen to these kind of people. And I, I thought, so that's great. So let's use kind of self-transcendence as a mark of the human, and let's forge like a theoretical unity between extended mind kind of thinking and Steve Fuller's sort of transhumanism. And, so, so, so now I'm sort of, I'm, for the purpose of this, of, of my comments, I'm going to stick to this one point. And now I'm starting to question whether, whether we're not using the notion of self-transcendence too broadly here. Um, and it does a lot of work for you because self-transcendence is a mark of the human, and that sort of is the kind of underlies an ethical horizon of prospective thinking, proactionary imperative, perseverance in the face of adversity and failure, ontological self-transformation. So it's a kind of human exceptionalism grounded in the Imago Dei doctrine. But on the other hand, it's important that self-transcendence is not a mark of the non-human animal, right? Right. Um, because, so that gets into the kind of ethical horizon of equanimity, absorption into nature, as you talked about this yesterday. Because that's what's, what's ruling in the non-human animal world, as it were, is a kind of blind Darwinian mechanism of random mutation, inheritable variation, selective retention mechanism. And I'm, I'm just starting, so, it, it, the, the duality, the ontological distinction between human and non-human animals is based on the kind of opposition between naturalist absorption into the flow of nature mm -hmm. versus, I'm, and I'm sort of exaggerating. No, 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 but this point, is, you're, right? you're on the right. Um, and spiritualist intervention, disruption, transformation, ultimate yes. triumph over the flow of nature. Yes. Right. So, so now my, 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 um, my, my, my thinking, though, is that, and you've made this point against uh, the notion of evolution. You, you made the point that it's being used in a way that's not univocal. It's right, um, theistic evolution, directed evolution, creative evolution. And I'm starting to wonder, I looked at passages, aren't we now using the notion of self-transcendence very widely? Mm. I found references to Plato, the recollection, the apperception of the forms, Bonaventure, uh, but then also analytic geometry, um, yes. Newtonian science, um, and, and contemporary science in, in, in general. And so my, 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 my question is here, um, I think that, you, I wonder whether your description of nature as anything that's governed by the force of natural selection does justice to what we actually see in nature. Isn't mark of self-transcendence the, the mark of the living? And my argument is going to run through niche construction theory. 
because it's really in the last 15, 20 years, this has been like become a major, I don't want to say opponent, but modification of the neo-Darwinian synthesis. Um, the idea is that, um, think, think of the, the, the beaver, right? The beaver builds a dam and that um, by doing so, by, by, by behavior or certain choices, modifies the environment, which changes the selection pressures that operate on the organism. So while the classical Darwinian story is you have the passive organism, who is sort of subject to these selection pressures and needs to somehow mold their, their body to fit a certain fixed template, nature construction theorists have said, well, you're totally neglecting this, this is a two-way road. And in many cases, if you think about that, these kind of um, the beaver dam and the altered flow of the water is passed on through generations, it's a kind of ecological inheritance mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. downstream affects the selection pressures of many species. Yes, yes, right. yes. Okay, so we get, we get that. And of course, once we have that, once we emphasize that, right, then people say, well, look, there's an analogy when we talk about cognitive niche construction. The analogy has it within lifetime learning, as it were, um, where both educational practices and human-built structures or artifacts are passed on from one generation to the next in ways that dramatically alter the opportunities, I don't want to say fitness landscape, for individual lifetime learning, as it were, right? Um, we, we can do, any, any example that any Clark likes, likes to give is the, is the, is the, um, the, the, cock, uh, the, the waiter uh, who has to uh, order, uh, uh, pick up the drinks for people who order, right? How do you remember the order of drinks and what type of drinks people want? Well, the waiter hears the order, right? Picks the correspondingly shaped glass from the shelf and puts it on the table using spatial order, right? Uh, to represent temporal order. So what you're doing is here, you're transforming a difficult memory problem into a much smarter, like a, a, a problem that can be solved using lightweight strategies perceptual, visual, recall, and so on. Mm -hmm. And of course this works in a, in a kind of self-engineered niche where you have tables and you have bartenders and you have bartending schools, as it were, right? So the idea here is that um, the, 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 the cognitive niche construction people, um, they are exceptionalists in the following sense, that, right, so here, I'm, that, that we are the best ecological engineers, because we're the only one who engage in a kind of long-term cumulative downstream epistemic engineering, right? So this is directed against the kind of evolutionary psychology people who assume that we have these sort of inbuilt hardwired modules, right? So the, the idea is you upgrade uh, to, uh, uh, to humanity 1.0, as it were, um, by, so, so here's how he puts it, to, to have a quote, this is in direct opposition to much recent evolutionary psychological speculation. That's Kim Sterelny, right? Um, we do not have essentially Pleistocene minds in our contemporary worlds. Instead, the same initial set of developmental resources can differentiate into quite different final cognitive products, transforming hominid developmental environments, transformed hominid brains themselves. As hominids remade their own worlds, they indirectly remade themselves. Mm -hmm. So clearly, niche construction has the kind of recursively self-improving character yes. that many people attribute to the singularity and technological evolution. So I think that the and this is so okay. So that's the back the backdrop. And I think for um, what, what I want to know, it's I'm, I've been thinking about this myself. Um, and I'm going to use the, the language um, of uh, theology of instead of talking about divine predication, is it univocal or analogical? I think we need to make up our minds whether when we talk about biological and cognitive niche construction, are we using this analogically or are we using this univocally? Because I think here's where the, where the tension lies. It seems like niche construction theory and cognitive niche construction, and it might, might is a natural ally of your way of thinking. 
But that requires that you, in a way, take on board that, what, that there, there is a sense in which self-transcendence and self-transformation is, is, is always there in life, a little bit. But it gets sort of more and more, right? But if you do that, that might strengthen your transhumanism, but I wonder if then you might get trouble in the Imago Dei doctrine. Because that requires that you draw a fixed distinction, that you, you should not take on board these kind of materialistic versions of, of, of self-transformation. Or maybe I'm seeing this too stark of a contrast, but do you, do you see where I, what, what I... Okay. Um, okay, are you... Fi- are, yeah, are you yeah that's, are, right, that's right, the right. point. Yeah. Um, I don't... Uh, I mean, one of the things I was saying to you when we were walking over here, uh, over to the, to the dinner, was that... Uh, I don't think one should understand the Imago Dei doctrine and the whole idea of self-transcendence as necessarily spiritualistic, at least in its entirety. And this is why I think um, you know, people like the Mormons and others who've been very much concerned about the resurrection as a material possibility that one could bring about, and so you know, it ha- if Jesus can do it, we can do it, right? If, with enough biomedical research. And this is why the Mormons are such big promoters of the private sector of biomedical research is partly because of that, right? It's this kind of so. I, I do think the notion of self-transcendence can be understood uh, quite materialistically, actually. Okay, so in this respect, I don't think there's any kind of metaphysical barrier in principle, at least from my standpoint, in terms of the way I understand transhumanism. Okay, I mean self-transcendence, the way I understand it, is in the first instance a transcendence of, uh, you might say, the Darwinian heritage of, of, of humanity as homo sapiens. That, you know, because if you take the, and this is what I was saying in the talk yesterday, right, that if you take the Darwinian conception of the human being seriously, then the kind of knowledge that we ought to be developing is simply that which enables us to adapt more effectively to the environments in which we normally find ourselves. It does not provide any incentive for us to overreach, to go beyond, to extend our phenotype, as Richard Dawkins says, which is largely what you were talking about, is the idea of the extended phenotype, right? Where you, as it were, uh, re-engineer the environments to enable your own reproduction to become more successful. And this is kind of what, what Dawkins is talking about, and this is what you're talking about, too. And, there's not, and that's self-transcendence as well, okay? Uh, now, the thing about human beings is that, that we have aspirations, at least in principle, to kind of do that for the entire reality, okay? So that in principle, and, and here, you know, one should think about our, our motivations for going into space, okay? So we're going beyond the Darwinian horizon, as it were, and we're thinking about at least potentially colonizing planets or traveling around or communicating with all these other beings that have no grounding on Earth, but somehow should have some kind of relationship to us, why? Right? Why? You know, this to me is also self-transcendence, right? And insofar as so much of our scientific endeavor, right, and the value that we place on it has been tied to this, okay, I think that's pretty significant. That says something about the kind of beings that we are. Um, you know, and so this is where we're talking about self-transcendence that isn't merely incremental in the sense that we're, you know, trying to expand our control over larger and larger environments. Of course we do that, but it's more than that, right? There's a kind of in-principle sort of sense that we should be able to 
if not colonize, at least understand or comprehend or put within one kind of conceptual framework everything that's happening everywhere. Okay? Uh, and that's the God aspiration. Right? That's the getting into the mind of God moment. And that's where self-transcendence starts to get into that kind of mode. Okay? Now, it's true, that might not seem very materialistic at the outset, simply because we're not there yet. Okay? But in principle, in principle, we, we, would, we could be there. Right? And, and, and so this is why I do take quite seriously, look, if we're going to have theories that tell us about how the entire universe works and how we're intimately related to it, and it's all covered by a single set of physical laws, and this is the aspiration of science, and it's still the gold standard by which we judge science, then in some sense, in principle, we're saying that uh, at some point in time, we could be anywhere. We could be there. And so there's a certain part of the transhumanist movement, which I didn't talk about yesterday, but is one I think is worth looking at. It's called cosmism. I don't know if this means anything to you, but there's a Russian, it's a Russian thing, okay? It comes from the or Russian Orthodox movement in the 19th century uh, and was very prominent in, uh, in, in the 20th century, though in a more secular kind of form. And it's from this, um, from this movement that we get uh, our concepts of, uh, of the earth as being a, a kind of, uh, a sort of unified organic space that we might uh, sort of come to be a, a steward of. So a lot of our ecological notions from it uh, come from it. Uh, the idea of the Anthropocene that you might be familiar with from the climate studies originates in, from this kind of thinking. And it's the idea of the, of the human, as it were, placing its stamp successively on the entire universe, okay? And what is the motivation for this? Well, the motivation is, again, this Imago Dei thing, okay? Uh, and, and, uh, and this is understood as being quite materialistic, actually. But it's materialistic and aspirational in the sense that we, don't we have not necessarily conquered the universe or have inhabited the entire universe. But it's within our purview to do this in principle, and that in a sense it would be a fulfillment of the kinds of epistemic aspirations that we have. I mean, and because without that, it's not at all clear why we, why are we so concerned about what goes on in space? Why are we so concerned about trying to communicate with extraterrestrial intelligences? Why does this stuff even bother us? Right? Why isn't this just kind of lunacy, given all the issues that already exist on Earth? It has a lot to do with our self-understanding as beings, okay? And this takes us very far from our Darwinian horizons. And on top of that, of course, it exposes us to enormous risks. So let's not deny that part of the story, right? That there's a lot of risks involved in what we're talking about here in terms of expanding us. But at the same time, this is, this is kind of, I think, what, what it is to be a human being, to be perfectly honest. This is, you know, if you want to say, it is this kind of self-transcendence which makes theology and science continuous with each other as a project. And it's very risky. There is no guarantee of success. We remain fallible beings. But in, you know, in some sense, we believe that we will be able to somehow overcome the obstacles in the long term. This is at least the way I look at it. This is the kind of transhumanism that I'm promoting. So it goes well, so, so it encompasses what you're talking about. But it actually has a much broader kind of aspiration, which gets us into 
what it is to be a human being and gets us, I think, closer to the kind of divine perspective, you know, even if it's understood in materialistic terms. Okay? And, and, and certainly within the history of Christianity, come on, I mean, we all know this, that there is a sufficient materialistic strain within Christianity itself to talk about the need to build a heaven on earth. Okay? That was very much part of kind of modern Christian thinking. Uh, and, and all of this idea of trying to improve the human condition, right, uh, is very, is, is, is I see it as a kind of prelude for the kind of transhumanism that I'm promoting here, okay? Um, and I realize this has all kinds of, it's fraught with problems, fraught with difficulties, uh, but, but nevertheless, I think this is where, where it goes. So, so it accepts what you're saying, but it goes beyond that as well. Do we have time? To, I had a second point, which means I was expecting exactly you to give this answer. <laughs> then you go into the direction of pointing to scientific enterprise as the ultimate asymptotic form of the asymptotic imagination of how we could transcend ourselves. So I want to make the second point um, where you say in chapter four of Humanity to All, here we're moving to what we may be the most controversial aspect of my position, namely that the active promotion of a certain broadly Abrahamic theological perspective or scaffolding is necessary to motivate students to undertake lives in science and to yes. support those who decide. All right. And, and now I went through your books and I have now I think I've distinguished seven different interpretations of this passage. Mm -hmm. um, do we have time that I briefly go over that? <laughs> because that sort of, is in a way, that's partly what kind of argument you give for the intelligent design stance. It's very much related, I think, to this point. So here's number one. And that's sort of the, um, the ontologically most robust version of an inference to the best explanation where you say, look, design in nature is an outpouring of an intelligent designer, and by co comprehending the design in nature, we live true to the nature of our being as having been created in Imago Dei. So God is a descender, and somehow he projects himself onto the world and human beings. That's the most robust one. The second one is sort of the Kantian one, a kind of regulative ideal, yes. which is still epistemologically robust, in the sense that, well, in a way, human beings are the center of reality, but we're projecting man onto God, we sort of create God in the image and likeness of our own being in order to justify the, not only the purpose of our existence, but to justify, to take control of evolution, as you said yesterday, which is somehow epistemically indispensable for the full realization of the human condition. That might be one interpretation. And I'm, I'm not saying you're committed to any of those. I, just, I was, in a way, trying to come up with different ways of interpreting sure, sure, sure. There's a weaker one, which I call the guide, of, guide to the scientific discovery argument, like Boltzmann's argument in favor of the atomic theory of matter versus mass phenomenalism, to say, look, it's not really a transcendental in the Kantian sense, but it just simply allows us to do better science. We know what to look for, design in nature, so let's adopt it. The fourth one, now it gets sort of a bit weaker, kind of let's call it the neo-pragmatist reading, to say, yes, it's true, things like simplicity, having a grand unified theory, um, um, Occam's razor, these are important um, problem-solving heuristics that may well work in certain sciences, like maybe in physics, but, so here's what Hacking and Nancy Cartwright mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. Bill Wimsatt would say, but you make, if you think it's gonna work for all sciences, you make a mistake. You introduce certain biases and shortcomings right, right. And maybe the very fact that we overlooked Nietzsche's construction in biology might be an example. We were so focused on this kind of neat Darwinian story that, right, that, 
The, the fifth one is it's sort of simply good PR it has a certain pedagogical value. You sort of tell a sort of a noble lie um, because <laughs> you, you, to teach our science and engineering students how to be godlike designers of nature. That's a cool thing. Sort of get them to sign up for the science courses, as it were. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's one interpretation. Yes, yes. Then you get the sixth one. The sixth one is purely historical. You say, well, as a matter of fact, the historical foundations of modern science are certainly grounded in these kinds of Abrahamic thoughts. And I think there's a lot of support for that. Um, and then there's the seventh one, um, which is really interesting, which you'd call the performative or realizationist reading. And I think now we're getting to something really important. Um, and this, you discuss it in the context that there were, in, a, in the Protestant Revolution, there were two different literal readings of the Bible. The ideographic, in the sense you take the Bible as a straight historical narrative, or the nomothetic reading, as a scientific theory, an abstract model of recurrent patterns in the world. And you argued that the nomothetic reading has an important performative dimension, in a kind of Serlian sense. And here's one quote that I think really in interesting. You said, and you, you're using uh, uh, Newton's FSMA, uh, uh, um, it's not a relationship that can be observed with the naked eye as one sees shapes in clouds, otherwise Aristotle would have seen it. Rather, it involves feeling with the world as if the equation were true, but given the resources at one's own disposal. In that case, intellectual intuition anticipates sensory observation in the quest of fully realizing the target truth. The next step is to construct a public demonstration to make plain the concrete implications of F is N times A, that construction is an experiment which, if compelling, can serve as a standard for evaluating and reconstituting the world. This is the deep point behind the claim that engineering is an application of physics and more generally, technology is an application of science. So there is a way, you, you said at some point, I'm not a constructivist, but I'm a realizationist. Yeah. And there's a kind of ambiguity, realizing that F is times MNA and realizing in a sense that you're now starting to build stuff under the assumption that F is M and A is true. But you don't want to give it a purely instrumentalist reading either. Right. Right? Right. So maybe you can say more about the seven. Well, that's where I'm a creationist. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is creationism, right? This is using the word as the basis for bringing about being. Okay? Uh, and this is where I think human beings are quite distinct as creatures is that we're in this respect we're doing exactly what God supposedly does you know in terms of creating by the word we create by the equation okay so you got F equals MA and now you make the world that way okay and in a sense what the modern era has been about was by trying to figure out a language by which the way works and by which the world works and then make the world work that way so there is this kind of performative kind of thing going on. I think that's how you should understand the history of the modern era with regard to the importance of science in transforming the world. And this is a kind of creation by the word. And, and what you need, as you point out, as I said, right, is you need a few concrete demonstrations initially to actually persuade people that this is the way to go forward. And then you're, you're licensed, and it's a complicated story how this licensing actually happens. You end up just re- reconstituting nature in the image of those equations that you've seen to work under these privileged settings where you say knowledge is being produced. And that's what the laboratories are. But why is that, in what sense is that a scientific realism that you think is part and parcel of the Abrahamic sort of assumption? In a way, so you, uh, before Newton, the laws were in truth. <coughs> is, that, is that the case? 
But isn't isn't because why why did is, is that what you're saying? I mean, because, I mean, I think I think the you know, here's the thing. Uh, I I think we need to we need to. This is where Saint Augustine may be helpful. Um, that we need to actually have a kind of distinction in our minds when we talk about these issues between what it looks like from God's point of view, where in fact there is no difference, right? It's always been a certain way, versus how we come about to know it, right? And, and then as it were, the whole issue about the history of knowledge is about trying to provide the translation between those two realms, right? Between the order in which we know things and the way things are. Um, and, and, and there's a coexistence, you might say, and, and every time something happens, it's happening, you might say, in both realms at once. I guess that, that would be my, my view about this. Um, now, and this is actually, to be honest with you, this is something I do spend a lot of time thinking about. And, and, and my interest in theology uh, is about this issue primarily. Uh, and this is where I think issues like theodicy become very important because because at one level, theodicy looks completely shameless and immoral because it justifies all kind of evil. But of course, that's only if you don't have some access to so what the God standpoint looks like. And so you need to have both in view at the same time to understand what's happening on the ground temporally and how that plays out versus what it means in some sort of whatever eternal perspective Okay, you have to have both of those things in view at the same time. And this is what makes the interpretation of Genesis, for example, very complicated, right? And this is the context in which Augustine is bringing up this stuff. And so we say, whatever, six days of creation or whatever, what does that mean exactly, right? There's a sense in which we have to have both of those perspectives in view at once. Um, so it is a tricky, it's a tricky issue. I don't, I don't pretend to have that completely resolved. But I, I do think that the general point about modern science is creating by the word through the equation and with the performative aspect of it is very much one of the ways in which we show our divine heritage. And I think this is what Newton thought, and I think that's, that is a very important part of the story. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That was really helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well thank you. Um, to Mark and to George. Um, floor's open. Do you want to ask any questions? Yeah, I want to thank the, uh, the, the commentators. Uh, this, this really does, regardless of, I don't, I don't know what the audience makes of this, but the commentators certainly got at the key issues. They certainly, they certainly got at what's going on here. <laughs> Can we revisit one? Sure. Um, prompted by Mark's comments and also a little bit Stephen. Um, uh, as I was reading through your work, fascinating, and I, I noticed, I, I didn't think arithmetic was going to play so big today, but it's, it's <laughs> uh, you, you tend to set up uh, dualities, right? Either or, either yeah. Paris or Oxford. Mm -hmm. That's um, right. Yeah. And, then, and then choose the one you like, right? Um, and, and so also, uh, your arguments often veer in a really fascinating way between philosophical and theological and then public policy questions. That's right. And I wondered why in both of those cases I was, I was both at one and the same time fascinated and, and troubled. And I think in the public policy case, the movement from the, the philosophical, the theoretical to the practical, it was 
that what it always seemed to assume is that the theoretical had been decided, so the real question was how we're going to unveil or order our power. Mm -hmm. Yes. And indeed, so then I stepped back and I thought, well, what's going on in this book as a whole? And what I saw was an account of the human that assumes power as the first principle. And so the difference between one account of humanity and another is always between different understandings of how we deploy our power. So we saw that in your comments today, your understanding of personhood as effectively a question of autonomy, right? How can we take responsibility for our action? Right. Um, and Marx's objection was that the fundamental question has always been, from Plato's Euthyphro forward, well, is the world determined by power? Is power the first principle of reality? Or is goodness? Is the good, excuse me. Mm -hmm. right? So the choice is always, there, here we have a two-point choice, it's always between a society of force or an anthropology of force, yes. an anthropology of reason, and a, uh, and a reality or a cosmos of <coughs> goodness. No, I understand. Yes. So you address that, but at the t time you addressed it, you shifted the good from Plato to Aristotle. Right. It was a consequentialist goodness or a sort of Gnostic Christian eschaton. Yes. But never the already always present good that's generative of things in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the reason that shift was so significant in your comments is that the good of Plato is self-limiting precisely because it's beyond power. That is to say, uh, the account of ourselves, so long as it stays within the realm of power, is never an adequate account of ourselves. And so the desire to be ecstatic is not only a desire, say, to transcend ourselves. Let me give you a quick example, and I'll just end with this. When I talk to my students about love and beauty, all my students want to fall in love, and it's not just because, you know, Tim desires the girl sitting across the room, it's because he wants to be pulled out of himself by his love for her, right? Mm -hmm. So why is that? Not because he wants to transcend himself, not because he wants to actively throw himself on her. It's rather because he wants to be pulled toward her. Yes. And the reason he wants that is because he doesn't want the world to be ordered by his power. He wants rather his power to be subject to something that transcends power. I understand. And I think you avoid that question. Yes, no, I, I, not only do I avoid it, I, I'm not that sympathetic to it. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you avoid it with good reason. But go yeah, yeah. No, I, I actually think that, um, I really do think St. Augustine did, an, did a very important uh, service to the history of philosophy by uh, inventing the concept of the will, okay? Um, and, and I do think that, uh, in a sense, uh, when we identify with God, we identify with God in that way. In other words, with the creative power. That is what we identify with. That's why, for me, creationism is a compelling thing. Okay? It's from the standpoint of being the creator. Okay? That's the key point, for, as far as I'm concerned. It's not, so, so uh, I'm afraid to say that at this fundamental metaphysical level, we are in a disagreement. Okay? So what you're pointing to are being drawn outside of ourselves without our active will doing it. That's not actually part of my conception of what our... Uh, identity with God is about. It's about participating in the will of God. Okay? And, and participating in the will of God 
doesn't necessarily mean that we can exactly second-guess God's intention. So we may, in fact, become vehicles of God's will without knowing it. This is where Hegel's cunning of reason and all of that kind of stuff comes in. And so for those of you who know about Hegel's philosophy of history, he says very early on that he's doing a secular theodicy. And that's exactly what he's doing. And what he's talking about is the way in which human beings participate in the will of God being realized in the world. But this is going to be called, what, the, uh, the self-actualization of reason or something like this, right, for secular audiences. Okay? Um, and, and that's the kind of relationship between humans and God that I'm talking about. So it is radically different. You, you are the other side of the argument. Yes? It's thoroughly scopes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I said this yesterday. Yes, exactly. Thank you. What? Sorry? SCOTUS. John Dun SCOTUS. If you get John Dun SCOTUS, you've understood where this is all coming from. And this is where John Milbank as the counterpoint is very useful because John Milbank is one theologian who understands this perfectly well and takes a position closer to yours. Or go ahead. Oh, thank you. I, I actually, I spoke with you yesterday after your conference uh, talk. Um, we developed very briefly and uh, kind of what I did. I spoke to you about about socialization of this kind of uh, ideas about society and culture. So in short, I want to ask you to deal with kind of an issue or give your comment to something that all three of the commentators are somehow uh, in, interrelated to each other in a way how we talk, talk about the idea of original thought and the kind of concept of multiple discovery. So in short, I, I want to deal with kind of a social um, conundrum that I've been having recently. And this concept, which is kind of an adaptation of what actually I had with a, a student um, at Warwick University, a friend of mine, uh, of this kind of concept of mental masturbation, if you will. It's kind of an adaptation of Nietzsche's moral masturbation. And this concept of having these illusions uh, of society um, without fully intellectualizing them or actualizing them to have a concrete concept of what you want to move towards. So you can have all these great ideas and concepts, but you don't really truly have the intent of something I, I forgot who said at this point, but something that I think it was you that said you have this idea, but then you kind of live in denial that it's not going to work, but you still do it and you give yourself that kind of credit. So yeah, just self-handicapping that I was self talking about. Self-handicap, correct, right. Yeah. And so I just want to have your comment on this kind of if you will, mental masturbation and what that kind of has on implications on growing society. Well, I'm not sure what, what, what level are you trying to get at, get at here? I Both mean, a societal level, but also kind of an intellectual philosophical level. Um, hmm. <laughs> um, well, look, I mean, I do think Here's the thing, uh, uh, and I don't know if this exactly addresses your question, but it, but it, it does go to the question of the risk-taking character of human right. beings, okay? Um, I think very often when we talk about human beings as being fallen or fallible and so forth, uh, this is seen as uh, almost a kind of a incentive for people not to put themselves forward, right? Namely, that there's a high probability of failure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't hold this view. I, I, I actually am cl much closer to the view uh, of no pain, no gain. Certainly. 
Okay, and this is very much kind of what the, when I, this latest book of mine in this series on the proactionary imperative has been about. And so from that standpoint, um, there's a sense in which you always need to overreach in order to figure out what your limits are. I mean, I am perfectly on board with everyone else who believes that human beings are limited creatures. Okay, I have no problem with that basic claim. But the claim is what the limits are and how you find them out is an open question. And you can't really find them out without actually testing, without actually trying, without actually trying to reach beyond where you currently are. That is the only way you're going to find the limits, okay? Uh, you're not going to find the limits through a priori reasoning, okay? And this is where I think the experimental approach, which has been very much the hallmark of modern science, is very much the way in which we should increasingly live our lives as human beings. And this is what transhumanism, in a sense, is about. It's about turning this kind of general kind of principle of the scientific method into an ethic for life. Okay? If I may shortly interject just as a quick counterpoint. So then you have, in some ways, addressed it, but then in a very fundamental level, so I'm trying to ask to, to address the point of how, as a society, if we hold these kinds of delusions or illusions, yes, they are good in an idealistic sense that helps us develop and find mm -hmm. your broader limits, but at the same time, for the vast majority of society, that's not possible to actualize. And from a realistic standpoint, that poses a lot of implications yeah, yeah. Society production. No, no, I agree. I, no, 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 but this is why yesterday in yeah. the talk, yeah. and this is where the stuff in my latest book comes out, that we really do need to, in a sense, socialize risk, right? And this is where we need to think more, uh, more, you know, more broadly about issues of social insurance and compensation and all the rest, rest of it, so that as people are exploring and trying to expand their horizons in various ways, that, we, that society as a whole takes responsibility for what the consequences are to individual lives, right? If we're going to live in a world in which we want people to expand their horizons indefinitely, we need to take collective responsibility for that. And that means, a, a, I think, a, a new renovated idea of a welfare state where we actually provide a kind of social insurance uh, and, and compensation for people who take those risks. I mean, um, so that, that would be, you know, from a, from a kind of political yes. standpoint, that's where I'm going with this, right? So this kind of utopian kind of welfare. Well, you, utopian, I mean, it's only, uti I mean, uh, in, in the sense that we have to figure out what the, what, what, the, uh, what the balance sheet looks like for this, Okay. right? As long as we haven't done that, it seems utopian. Uh, but I do think that there are a lot of benefits to be gained in the long term from people taking quite radical experiments. But then the sort of, you know, suffering that they endure in the short term as a result of having taken them if they turn out to fail, I think those things need to be publicly supported, right? That, 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 you know, so in other words, people don't end up taking the risks in a completely blind state. Sure. Yeah. Okay, Ken? Um, you know, you brought up Augustine's uh, sort of creation of, 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 of conception of, of the will. And I mean, what do we do with the, 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 the fact that it seems to me that, you know, Augustine begins to talk in terms of will as a problem rather than as a solution. In other words, my freedom is as often and maybe more often a problem for me rather than 
an answer for me. Yes. And it seems to me that, that you know, if you want to sketch a sort of continuity with the Christian tradition in the way that you, you articulate, um, autonomy is a deeply fraught notion in the Christian tradition. And again, as often or more often a problem rather than a solution, yes. or trying to figure out what the heck it actually is, what is a fitting understanding of self-rule, and what is the way in which this is exactly the problem. So I guess one way of sort of articulating it, asking you to articulate this, is, is could you just say how your vision of the Imago Dei doctrine is distinguishable from simple sort of Prometheanism? Oh. What, what's the difference? Well, first thing is uh, that uh, the, the Imago Dei doctrine actually establishes a kind of clear relationship between humans and God. It isn't simply uh, about, because when the, in the Prometheus myth, it's, it's basically about trying to, it, it's explicitly about transgressing boundaries that one shouldn't go beyond. Mm -hmm. In a sense, it's begging the question from the Christian standpoint, mm -hmm. it seems to be Prometheanism. Um, I think what you're talking about, which is exactly true, namely that the issue of the will and autonomy has been a big problem for the Christian tradition, the way I understand that is that it's uh, kind of like we've got this capacity, but we're not sure how to use it properly, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a sense in which we have to learn how to use the capacity that we have inherently. Mm -hmm. That's the way I understand this. So the, the whole idea of the will being a problem, it's a problem of our not knowing how to use it properly. Just like it might be, you know, any facility one might have available to oneself that one can't use properly, that one ends up making mistakes and errors with it. But that doesn't mean that the, the facility doesn't exist. That doesn't mean the facility isn't valuable, but you have to learn how to use it properly. And I think this is the thing, that the will, in a sense, is the godlike capacity that human beings have, but because we're fallen, fallible creatures, we don't have any kind of instantaneous, intuitive understanding of what this is. We have to learn how to use this thing properly. Okay, so so there's a learning process involved in the in in the use of the will and the use of autonomy and things like that. But are we autonomous with respect to God in that sense? Well, hmm. Let's put it this way. Um, I think that our autonomy is compatible with God's autonomy. Mm -hmm. So those two things happen in sync. And this goes back to the kind of how does this look like from God's standpoint versus our standpoint, right? The kind of split, the duality mm -hmm. that exists. Um, but uh, yes, I do think we do have autonomy. Yes, and it's independent of God's in, in, the, in, the, in the sense that we are exercising it ourselves and we take responsibility for it. But it's certainly compatible with God's will. Both of those things coexist. So God's will is something outside of me with which I can choose to conform or not conform. No, no, no. I don't actually see it quite that way. I actually okay. think we are, in some sense, through our will, participating in God's will. Mm -hmm. But we're not participating. We're, we, don't, we don't encompass all of God's will, but we're participating in it. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, so there is a kind of, I do take the idea of participation kind of seriously, right? That there's a sense in which our will participates in God's will, but God's will exceeds our will individually. How about that? Well, that's the principal agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in what sense, what sense do you still have autonomy with respect to God then? Well, you're still 
acting from your own will and you do take responsibility for your actions and this is where the issue of personhood and autonomy as a locus for responsibility comes in. The key thing about autonomy is taking responsibility, it seems to me. It's not just about expressing oneself but also being the source of one's expressions. Right. Yeah, and I just sort of, I don't want to take up the rest of the time, but it would be, it would be difficult, I think, finally, to distinguish that as an autonomy relative to God's will and, and make that harmonious with participation in God's will. I, I think that those things, so, so our, our freely accepting of responsibility, right, is also a, 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 a willing freedom to conform. God's will. Yes, yes, of course. Right. But but look, I mean, just because we are doing things freely doesn't mean we have to do things antagonistically. Right? I mean, just well, because I'm doing... If you want to take participation really seriously that way, then then my freedom is God's... My, my action is God's action. Yes, I don't disagree with this. But, but, but the point is, God is doing a lot at once, and we're only doing a bit of it, but it's all mm -hmm. happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Can I get it wrong? You can get it wrong with regard to your understanding of what the hell you've done, mm -hmm. right? And this is where the cunning of reason and stuff like that comes in with regard to Hegel, right? That in a sense, we are doing things freely. We think we're doing it for a certain kind of reason, for a certain kind of end. But in mm -hmm. fact, all those voluntary things that we're doing, in fact, some, serve some other kind of purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's God's purpose. You see? So, so both of those things happen simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's ironic, right, from Hegel's standpoint. Because right. we may have a, a false self-understanding mm -hmm. of what it is that we're doing when we're doing things freely. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. Thanks. Go ahead, Jim. Um, Steve, I just started reading your work on uh, humanity. Two points there, uh, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I couldn't make the lecture yesterday. I was actually literally in jail. Um, Jesus. <laughs> so with that by way of <laughs> well, look, it's, it's on camera. You know, that's well. That's well. So we, the police know where he is now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm okay. They let me go. Um, I, you know, with that said, I, I want to, in terms of listening particularly to the, to the theological conflict that's going on, I, I, I'm going to align myself with the tradition that's emerging out of Mark, James, and Kevin. And I would call that tradition Augustinian. Um, and uh, yeah, here's sort of you know my my short take on on on, on the issues here, and and, and it's going to resolve itself in a puzzle <coughs> of what self transcendence is. And unlike Georg, I, I don't think actually it's being used in many many different ways. In a way, it is. In a way, I think it comes down to the same notion. I, I think it's coming down to self engineering, and, and this would actually and actually I think self transcendence is very different than self engineering. And the Augustinian theological tradition, I think, is really intent on this. So, really quickly, um, I, I think Kevin is quite right that Augustine's being credited for having invented the will of Hannah Arendt and Albert Schiller, the ones that particularly pushed this line, I, I think it's less popular these days, but I. I but it's a fun thesis, so I, 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 I think we should sort of <coughs> I think we should play with it. But it's really the will to sit <laughs> that they're identifying. 
And if you look at sort of like, you know, what does he mean metapoetically by the will to sin? Because he really plays it out in terms of stories. I mean, he's, he, he is a good, I mean, he likes theories, but ultimately he's, he's just a brilliant rhetorician. And it's really the disposition uh, in human beings, which I think is, I think he thinks is fundamentally mysterious, to turn away from the good, which I think for him is a source of inspiration more than some sort of fixed <coughs> notion. So James, I'm picking up this idea of like, you, if you go in ahead of time thinking that you already know what the theory is, mm -hmm. and then you try to apply it, you know, I think from an Augustinian point of view, you're, 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 you're already in trouble. So there's this disposition to sort of turn away from theory, turn away from inspiration, and kind of self-engineer. And usually, and I think for him this is in the face of fear. So it's like, okay, you know, you're, we're promised a certain kind of eternal life in God. But it requires some trust in God. And then you get a story of like, well, you know, doubt comes up. We're not going to trust. We're going to sort of appropriate the knowledge and see how we go. And, and then there's this rift now between um, a form of development that would require openness to inspiration mm -hmm. and in a form of development that really has to do with more and more um, frantic, if ingenious, attempts to self-engineer. And I was listening to, and just talking, you hear you talk about Humanity 2.0, and <coughs> I guess my question, but I'm just at the beginning of understanding what mm -hmm. you're talking about, is I'm, I'm just not sure how different it is from humanity 1.0. In some ways, it's like, well, we're going to be more efficient at using technological devices, maybe incorporate them into our being. But at the end of the day, isn't the self-engineering project one of you know, being able to master an environment? And isn't sort of the model of knowledge still on the model of mastery? And isn't that sort of a fairly conservative notion? I, the, I, honestly, these are questions. Or not, and I, I'm not saying I, I, I'm necessarily getting what you're saying, but I'll finish it up with this. The reason why I don't think that self transcendence can be identified with self engineering, and, and why actually I'm sympathetic with James's notion of beautiful, I think self engineering by, is, 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 is conservative. Hmm. You know, where self transcendence is by its very nature, you can't perfect it, <laughs> you can't predict it. There has to be something in you that's open in a way that, you know, the, the language of how you describe yourself on the other side, you can't explain it, you can't predict it with the language you have now. And it just, so, so again, it's... Uh, yeah, no, 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 but see, in a sense, I do agree with you, okay. right? Uh, it's, it's just how do we actually get, uh, how do we, uh, as it were, bridge the difference, okay? Um, and... One thing, one thing I said at dinner last night with regard to uh, the origin of the scientific revolution and how all the Scotist thinking kind of played into this and this kind of Scotist reading of Augustine played into it um, was that, the, uh, that part of the way we should cash out the unpredictability of the self-transcendence and the remaining openness to a larger sense of being was through the experimental method. Okay, because the whole point about the experimental method is you don't know the outcome before you start. <coughs> yeah. Okay, um, and 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 it was quite it's quite clear if you look at all these guys in in the scientific revolution that that this is kind of why they thought that whatever happened in the laboratory could be revelatory in some kind of way was by virtue of this kind of openness to the possibility that you know established knowledge and 
you know, tradition and all the rest could be false. Okay, that's what gave us the scientific method, is that kind of mentality. So this is not inconsistent with what you're saying. It's, the issue here is, is what are the vehicles for you know, promoting self-transcendence? And I think what you find from the scientific revolution is the experimental method turns out to be the dominant way by which uh, you know, people in this, in, particularly in the Protestant tradition, decided this was the way to go right. on exactly the point you're talking about. Right? Because, and so, and, and so you, you may have a problem with that. I understand you may have a problem with that point. But it seems to me that they, these guys were, were aware of the issue you're raising. And this is how they solved it. Yeah. Can I add a refinement on Jim's point? Though it seems to me that <coughs> if, uh, I mean, Jim's kind of articulating one of the things that I decided not to spend time on. Um, which is that looking at one of the ways in which you um, argue in favor of the pro-actionary principle <coughs> is that uh, essentially that we need to make these discoveries faster, right? Because otherwise, why? Otherwise, why not precaution? Why not wait, you know, two or three hundred years until things kind of come along when they come along? Right? And it seems to me mm. that this mm. is mm. a symptom. Mm. Mm of what Jim is describing, mm -hmm. right? You and, and James too in a way, right? You cast right what what the scientific revolution does is cast our lot with being able to control things, right? Have more control over right. our world. Yeah. But the more we try to have control over our world, the more we believe we have to have control over our world, the more desperate we are about things that we can't control. And so this kind of desperation to really push this agenda forward in you know a, a kind of way that involves inviting people to take more risks with themselves and whatnot uh, really seems to be a kind of frantic fearful position rather than which is you know it's a kind of right from from the vantage point of what I'm calling humanity 3.5 it looks a lot like the incapacity to come to a mature reckoning with mortality. Well, and there's promotion that, of, the promotion yes. of a kind of, you know, human profile that's sort of a hysterical adolescence striking heroic poses and clinging to these idols desperately as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. You flatter me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look. <laughs> Yes, well, uh, yes, and the problem, no. <laughs> um, no, but I, the one thing I will take objection to, because I think in a sense, you know, if you want to understand something about the psychology that informs people who are attracted to the kinds of things I'm talking about, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, and um, it's a kind of middle youth syndrome, right? Um, but, uh, but I do, but, I, but where I do take a, uh, exception is, is, is the business about the speed because um, I actually do think it's a much more of a, of a either or thing here. Namely uh, that uh, it's not at all obvious <coughs> that uh, we are going to, you know, it's, it's not just a problem that we're doing things too quickly. There is a sense in which if you look at the disposition of humanity at the moment, and this is where the precautionary principle needs to be brought in as a, as a, as a real foil for what I'm talking about, uh, it's not at all clear 
that we are going to be moving even gradually in the direction of more and more kind of you know exploratory adventurous research right because there are people who are arguing against lifting ethical restrictions on research and, and maybe even wanting to uh, clamp down even more uh, so it's it this isn't I don't think it's a matter of whether we're going to get to the future more slowly or more quickly I think there's an issue about whether we're going to move ahead at all and and, and what might look like as going too fast is actually an attempt to make sure that we're actually moving along. That's what I would say, because I do think, you know, because, I mean, one of the things I have to appreciate about being in this audience is that you guys overall seem quite liberal, okay? Maybe you're hiding something, but, but, but you seem relatively <laughs> liberal. Uh, and, but, but nevertheless, I do, uh, in fact, confront people who uh, uh, really think we've gone too far already and who think that, you know, as a result of World War II, right, with Hiroshima, with the Holocaust, we should have shut down those branches of science that, in fact, uh, led to those atrocities to happen. And, in fact, we're now, you know, we're seeing the after effects today of not having stopped those things, okay? So there is a precautionary mentality that very much exists in this world uh, and will bl be blaming us for global warming and all the rest of it. Okay, so so don't. Uh, I mean, I think maybe we're, we're you know so so I don't think it's so much a matter of whether we move faster. Because look, I I'm I don't have a kind of ticking clock going along that if we don't get to the future by next week we're going to be doomed. Uh, that that's not my view. Okay, I'm I'm quite happy to stagger things. I'm not saying we should lift all ethical restrictions or whatever. But we should be thinking along those lines. That's the way in which policy should be going, as opposed to making things more difficult to happen. That's kind of what I'm arguing for as a policy, uh, at a policy level. Okay, so, so uh, uh, I think it's a little unfair to say I just want to re remove all restrictions and let's move full speed ahead. That's not quite what I'm saying. But I, do, I am saying this in the backdrop of other people who actually want to stop research and think that we've gone too far. And those are the people I'm, I'm, I'm really opposing here. I, don't, I haven't yet heard anyone in this room say such views. And so maybe this is because you, you maybe you're just too polite. Uh, but but you're part of that position. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I invited a few other people who actually couldn't come in the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I take a whole spectrum. Because they won't track cars. You guys <laughs> said seem like a pretty liberal crowd. <laughs> I mean, uh, Oh, I just thought we had to establish that there was a good prior to asking what it was. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. James, you know, in that context, uh, see, the way, the way this is coming to me is uh, the Persian notion of truth is truth is that which is true in the long run. Yeah, 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 the exactly. Good is the theory of good is the good is that which is in the long run. Exactly. Good, as opposed to James trying to fix Exactly, the yeah, and, and Peirce was very influenced by Scotus, of course. Right, so, I mean, the Hegelian Persian yeah. Ontology seems to be, you know, very close to your heart. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but if you destroy all the goods in the short term for the sake of a good that you haven't even figured out what it is in the long term, then... Uh, well, that's why, that's, you need you to that's why you need to believe in God. Well, that's where grace comes no, in. No, seriously, yeah, exactly. This is where God comes in. Come on, guy. This is where God comes in. It's exactly on this point. Hit me, Hit me, Hit me, Hit me. Hit me. Hit me. 
How does God come in at that point? Well, because look, as you were saying, right? In the in the short term, we're going to be doing all this destruction, all these crazy things are going to happen. But somehow we believe it's a theodicy. Yes, it's a theodicy. It's a theodicy perspective. At the end, all of these you know unresolved issues, where there seems to be all these harms and sufferings taking place, resolve themselves in some ultimate point. Sorry. Can I just ask if, if you're kind of referring to like a surrender in God as kind of like a force my ear in a way? Is that uh, like a what? A force my ear, like a greater force? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that is that what you're alluding to? Because to me, it seems like that um, it's also it happens again on multiple levels. No, no. See, I, I'm actually talking about a notion of God. I mean, this is where the issue of will comes in. Where, in some sense, we are participating in God's will in the world by what we do, even if it turns out that what we do doesn't have good consequences in the short term. Okay? Uh, and in a sense, we, uh, part of what we do is we become more and, you know, more and more self-realized, you know, in this kind of Persian, Hegelian, whatever sense, uh, is that we come to understand the nature of the errors that we've made along the way. But all of that actually does presuppose a pretty strong notion of God at the end of the day. Otherwise, it does look like a lot of wasted suffering and horrible stuff happening to people. Okay, so there's a sense in which in the end, yes, it's all resolved. God does resolve it all. You know, with, you know I, mean, and, and, uh, I mean, I think that's kind of what you have to, what you have to go for here. At least this is... That's, that's deus ex machina in the strongest possible sense. Well, maybe, okay, 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 you know, I mean, God is the ultimate technologist. <laughs> right, I mean, come on, I mean, no, but that is kind of what it, what, what it boils down to, yes. So there is certainly a place, there's a very strong place for God in terms of focusing your faith in the ultimate, for sure, in what I'm saying. It's just that it's just that it's not so apparent where it exists in the in the interim. <laughs> have you ever read any of um, Frederick Turner's work? Have you? Frederick Turner, the guy in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, so I would when you use the word reactionary, it's like <laughs> identified with it immediately. <laughs> but uh, but I, he, he's, he's a writer who has who's intrigued me in some ways. His book, A Culture of Hope, is. Yeah. Kind of fascinating, I'm, and, it's, and I, I'm noticing some affinities between your, yeah, yeah. your thinking and his. Yeah, well, I mean, to, to be honest with you, I mean, and, and, and we're in the United States, so I'll say this, uh, the sort of strange ways in which Christianity has morphed in the United States, in the Mormons, I mentioned the Mormons earlier, the Christian scientists, maybe, you know, certainly the Unitarians, which are a group that I'm very much fond of, um, Deists, people like this, that are very prominent in the history of America, transcendentalists, of course, <coughs> all of these morph, morphings of Christianity are very much along the lines that I'm talking about, actually. Okay? Um, and, and in fact, if one, you know, the United States is actually the place where this kind of thinking that I'm talking about, this kind of faith in progress kind of thing, really has taken hold in them. And, and, and so we heard about the positive psychology stuff, but also positive thinking as a movement that comes out of the Unitarian Church but then gets very secularized over the course of the 20th century is also part of this as well. And one could do a kind of whole history of these kinds of, as it were, American heresies of Christianity that actually feed into the kind of humanity 2.0 thing I'm talking about. That, you know, I mean, I think it, you know, and so you know, if one wants to kind of do the whole panoramic sweep of where all this is coming from, 
and Peirce is a very important figure. Heard of Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? Again, all these people. They would be all, if they were in the room, they'd be on my side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we'll take that opportunity to thank everyone. Thanks, Steve, for coming. And uh, thank you. Thank you.